You're up to your ears in online courses and professional training plans, but what evidence is there that your learning and development is actually any good? Hello, I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is the CIPD Podcast. There's a great old cartoon, you may have seen it, two Neolithic looking types in loincloths are sweating as they try and pull a box filled with stones uphill. Another looks on, offering them an axle and two stone wheels, but they wave away the offer, shouting, no thanks, we're much too busy. So, are we too busy to learn, too busy to look for evidence that our workplace learning is actually hitting the spot, and therefore worth what the organisation is paying for it? Well, stand by for everything about evidence-based learning that you've been afraid to ask. We've some top guests waiting in the wings to help us. But first, and right alongside me for this podcast, a CIPD steeped in professional development, so much so he was at the heart of developing the Institute's new L&D qualifications, it's Andy Lancaster, Head of Learning at the CIPD. Hi, Andy. Hi, Nigel. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm guessing if people ask you what you do at a party, assuming that we'll ever go to a party again soon, you might not say, I'm in evidence-based learning and development. Uh, It's a bit scary, isn't it? No, I think it is. But being in learning development is the role we have. And what we're looking is for effective learning that has a real impact in organisations. So I think great learning is an inherent thing that we're looking for evidence-based practice which really drives forward impact. Yeah I mean can we just start with a definition here I mean what is evidence-based learning? I wanted to start Nigel just by telling you a story which my grandfather told me because I think this sets the context for it really well and it's about onions in your socks. Um, My grandfather sadly is no longer with us he he was a real character and he used to come out with these amazing one-liners and on a matter of steering clear of flu and coals he once advised me to put some onions in my socks. Now you know, this is an old folk remedy that what you do is you slice some onions and you put them in your socks underneath your feet on the basis that when you wake up in the morning, you'll be cured. Now, I looked this up. According to the National Onion Association, and yes, there is a National Onion Association, you can still find this remedy on the internet and it originates back to the 1500s. And it was thought in those days that infections were spread by poisonous air. That theory has subsequently been replaced to, to show that actually germ-based theory, germs are you know contracted in different ways. So studies have now shown that there isn't a lot of evidence about putting onions in your socks. It relies on claims and anecdotes. And yet there have been no studies that actually refute that putting onions in your socks will prevent you getting colds and flu. And in some ways for me, Nod, you asked the question, what is evidence-based learning all about? That picture really sums up for me. You know, in learning and HR practice and organizations, often what we do is based on history. It's anecdotes which have been passed down. It's principles that have neither been proven or dismissed. And now as we focus on evidence-based practice, what we really need to do is to dispel some of these old theories and anecdotes. And we now need to recognize that we can research and we can find principles which are based on real evidence which will inform our impact. So it's time to take the onions out of the socks and actually do things which have real genuine impact. In a way, you're almost answering my next question, because uh, to me, when we sort of embarked on talking about this, I thought this topic felt a bit like a no brainer. I mean, surely all organisations will deliver learning and develop their people in ways that are shown or or proven to work. So I, I couldn't understand well, why wouldn't they? But I mean, it's something to do with, well, we've always done it this way. Exactly right. And we've got to face some very uncomfortable truths that some of our practice is now outdated and things which maybe may have been worth entertaining in the past. Now, those assumptions have been challenged and are wrong. And I think 
we also need to be fiercely anti-fad. Sometimes I think in learning, there is no bandwagon, which learning professionals, which we won't leap on. And now we've got to stand back and recognize that it's not about our pet approaches. It's not about what we might like to do. It's not about copying other people who may not have any evidence behind their practice, but really fiercely focusing on now doing things which have a direct impact on effective learning. And that obviously my nature is going to affect the organization mm. positively so yeah we've got much history here Nigel in learning which we've got to now put on one side and we've really got to focus on what is genuinely evidence-based practice and I mean you've got me thinking about that I mean there are so many things aren't there I mean the availability of the trainers how they've always done it their personal judgment preferences of individuals budgets I mean there are all kinds of things which must seem like reasons why you do things a particular way there are, you know, and that's why I'm valuing Laura Overton and Owen Ferguson coming in today, who are people who I really esteem in this space, who are passionate about great practice in, you know, genuine evidence-based practice. So, yeah, there's loads of stuff out there, but it's now time for us as a profession to stand back and reflect, often we're too busy to do this, to stand back and reflect on what really underpins great learning great learning in organisations and now to emulate that practice rather than some of the hearsay stuff we've done. Well, you say great learning, Andy. I mean, this topic has been kicking around for years. Why is it come to the fore now? I think, you know, two words on, on, on the lips of most senior leaders is performance and productivity. You know, that's a reality for organisations now to not only thrive, but to survive, we've got to address the issue of performance and productivity. And that's really crucial for us. So if we're going to invest great resources often in learning, in both in time and often in budget, it has to have a positive outcome. So I think why it's particularly pertinent now, Nigel, is because organisations are really focusing on the productivity and performance agenda, and rightly so. And therefore, learning and HR professionals need to now be emulating and, and demonstrating practice, which is going to really drive performance in the organization and we're going to bring in our guests in just a second but just before we do that i came across a few statistics looking up this topic and i realized this was a live issue when i saw this i mean this from the cipd more than a quarter of people survey believe they didn't have the skills to make informed evidence-based decisions 96 percent identify using data and analytics as a priority area and this this was actually from the ceb now part of gartner only 16 percent of lnd practitioners actually use data and metrics proficiently only 25 percent have the right skills so i mean that really all those figures show there's a big deficit here there is a you know and i'll value particularly owen and laura have been you know looking at longitudinal studies on this this has been an, an ongoing trend so it is time to break this cycle and there's all sorts of reasons around you know maybe fear and all these kind of things but now we've got to look at how we can be evidence-based practitioners and I think I'm looking forward to the conversation with Laura and Owen who I know will bring some great insights around this. Okay well let's bring them in right now. Uh, firstly delighted to welcome somebody whose whole professional career has been focused on supporting leaders and managers. He's Chief Product Officer of Emerald Works and a familiar face from the Good Practice podcast many people will have followed. It's Owen Ferguson. Hello. Hi there, Nigel. Good to be here. And the co-creator of Emerging Stronger, which is a masterclass in becoming a more effective development leader. She's the founder of the Learning Innovation Researchers Towards Maturity, Laura Overton. Hi, Laura. Hi, Nigel. Thanks for having me here. So, OK, Laura, we've just kind of had a very general introduction to this. In my mind, I'm still seeing evidence as a kind of tool to evaluate, to improve, or even maybe an excuse to dump some existing programmes. But I think you say that evidence should be deployed at a much earlier stage. I mean, sometimes to to question managers or even the nature of the actual projects themselves. 
Yeah, I guess for me, evidence is all about how we use the information around us to be able to bring proof. You know, if we think about evidence in a court, you know, it's normally about proof. It's about what do we need to kind of prove? Does this work? To Andy's point earlier, you know, is our practice effective? Is it backed up scientifically? Does the data kind of show that our practice is effective? But also we use evidence to approve things you know that when we've got good information in our hands then we can work with other people to actually bring them on board when you know when it's not just opinion that's driving something but we've got real evidence and proof so to prove approve to disprove you know I think that's also important use of, of evidence particularly when we're so caught up in these habits that Andy's just been describing and sometimes we have to challenge our own thinking as well as challenge the thinking of those that are around us to you know how do we use evidence in that way and then also evidence to improve so the whole role of evidence in the way that we are going about our practice how do we improve it even the way that we just look at something we've just delivered or just been involved with has that worked in what ways can we continually improve it so it's not necessarily use of evidence to prove ROI of learning and development you know that actually it can be quite debilitating sometimes when there are so many factors that actually link that to, but how do we use evidence to prove, improve, disprove, and approve? You know, there's so many different ways in which we can bring evidence into our decision-making and into our practice. I like the progression of the disprove and approve. I think that's really nice because it is. Sometimes we sometimes get into a negative mindset law about this, don't we? You know, it's just about rubbishing everything and sometimes professionally we just see so much of that going on but it is about approving the right things as well so I think having a a critical mind Nigel is not about being negative critical it's a positive critical thing and I love that kind of let's approve our practice as well I also Laura I love that kind of thing we've got to look wider on this one often this is done far too late isn't it we've been I know Owen will probably join us we've been three musketeers around this one this is often too late so I love this concept about evidence-based practice throughout the whole learning process so I think yeah so I'm with you on that one so Owen why are we so bad then at using evidence if uh, essentially in their heart most L&D people actually know they need more evidence why do we just not get on with it well, the simple answer, Nigel, is that it's uh, it's quite hard to make that shift because things have been done in a particular way for such a long period of time. And the reason that we know that it's difficult is if you look in other professional domains, there has been quite a struggle at particular points of their evolution to make the jump from being expert opinion-led experience-led to being genuinely evidence-led. So Andy mentioned the onions and the socks and the the miasma theory of how disease got spread. There's a brilliant book called The Ghost Map, and it's all about Dr. John Snow and how he uncovered the actual transmission mechanism of a massive cholera outbreak uh, in London, uh, and he managed to track it down to it being carried by water. But the way that he did that was painstaking work to collect data that he could then examine and then test against reality. And that was back in the 19th century. It wasn't until the 1970s that a genuine evidence-based approach to medicine took hold. And it took quite a few people fighting against people who led the profession through their kind of expert demeanor in order for that change to happen. So it takes some brave people to do some painstaking work, but 
right at the core of it, we are talking about figuring out whether the stuff that we do actually works. So it cannot be any more disheartening than doing stuff and not having a degree of surety around that. Mm. So, you know, if I was to boil down evidence-based practice, it's doing things in a way that you can have more confidence that your actions are going to have a positive impact and then progressively understanding what's worked and what hasn't in terms of your own activity. All right, well, let's begin at the beginning. Laura, you must have helped a number of organisations who are stuck at this point. So just give us some simple ideas of the kinds of evidence you can gather. And I mean, how difficult is this? I mean, do you need to be a scientist? Do you need to really understand data to be able to marshal and then use this information? Well, that's a great question. Do you need to be a scientist? Do you need to be mathematically inclined? Most learning and development professionals really struggle with that. And I know, Andy, you've asked that question many times in the room, haven't you? Say, where is your, what's your background? And very few of us come from that kind of arithmetic background. But I think really our best starting point as a learning professional is to be able to tap into our curiosity. If we're genuinely curious about wanting to know more, wanting to be our best selves, wanting to be professional, then we can look around and see that data is all around us. And I think sometimes we're very blinkered when it comes to our attitude towards data. And we think what comes out of our learning management system or our, you know, sort of management information systems, it's very, very blinkered. But With a curious attitude, we can actually see that evidence and data is all around us. Yes, there is scientific evidence and there are people who have really boiled that down brilliantly in order to help us as mere mortals understand that. And Andy, you know, give a shout out to your book here, because when other people have looked at what the evidence says about good practice and they're kind of distilling it down, that's a great place to start for us to be able to think and to be reading in that space. But also what evidence is around here? around us in terms of the things that we can capture. You know, what are the stories that people are telling? What's going on in the podcast? What's going on? You know, there's a whole range of different sources of evidence. And I personally, I think if we can just embrace the information that is around us, it is a starting point because it starts to break down our fear of working with evidence and our fear. I mean, I have to be honest with you, I'm still struggling with this because you're all saying use evidence, but you're still not taking me to that point where I can get my head round where you start gathering it from and how you start applying it. So Andy, can you help me here? Yeah, um, I think Laura's touched on a really important point. So I'm just going to just emphasise something really important Laura said about curiosity. We often see in child development as they, you know, as a child goes through, you know, the why stage is really important. It's, it's where you're gathering information, which actually changes your thinking, your behavior. And I think that asking why is really important. And I think Laura's touched a really crucial point about that. We must be curious. Let's start through the process. I think one of the reasons we often fall down on this is we don't diagnose very well what the actual learning needs is, if it's a learning need at all. So, you know, as a practical thing on this one, often we end up uh default position is we think there's going to be a learning outcome and we fail to recognize that the actual performance need is is based in the real ecosystem it's a systemic thing that's going on so we we sometimes oversimplify even what we're trying to do here so if you want to look for evidence i think diagnosis is really really important we know the thing if we go to the doctors we expect the doctor to do a good diagnosis based on evidence as to what the outcome might be needed here so i think a starting place Nigel, is we've got to start diagnosing really well as to what the default issue the default opportunity 
we have. And I think that comes right back to Laura's point about curiosity, asking interesting and difficult and probing questions about what we're even trying to do is the first place where we start finding evidence. Well, okay, in that case, Owen Ferguson, can you give me an example, perhaps, from your own experience of a situation where starting to use evidence has uh, improved outcomes in a business, uh, perhaps improved talent management, or just something that's important to the learning and development process? I can talk to my own personal context here so one of the things that the uh, the company does we we make products that are that aim to be used within organizations and there are certain expected outcomes from uh, those those products being used and so the first thing we ask ourselves is what problem are we trying to solve or what change is being required how will we know when that has happened and what metrics are already in place for us to measure the effectiveness of that change and from that starting point you work your way back and so we do lots of things like we run a b tests so you know rather than just design one platonic ideal of a solution we'll design multiple solutions then we'll deploy them and we'll figure out which one is working best based on the metrics the performance outcomes or the the evaluation metrics that we've put in place and so i guess as andy was mentioning starting with the end of mind is is critical in order for you to to be able to put something in place that actually has the impact that you're intending. But if someone's looking for a cookie cutter approach that can be used in every situation, in every single organization, that's not being evidence led because you need to take evidence from your local context. You need to critically evaluate whatever research evidence is available for the problem that you are solving, as opposed to just adopting approaches that have been taken on by other organizations and expecting it explicitly to work within your own. Uh, Laura, I know you've been talking about uh, work uh, you've done in the past in retail. Yeah, there was one example of using evidence in a big retail organisation we were working with where we'd actually went out to the staff in those organisations at all levels, from directors through line managers through people onto the shop floor. And we used questions to ask them to reflect on how they currently learn what they need to do their job. It's a very similar kind of research program, I think, Owen, that that you've done as well with leaders as well, but just getting people to reflect. And that surfaced all kinds of different insights into how people were doing their job and how people were learning how they were doing their job. And yet when their line managers came to the learning and development team saying, I would like a course, I would like you to put everybody on a course, everyone on a program, the learning and development team were able to take this learning landscape work and say, actually, here is a picture of how your team say they learn best. Are you sure you want me to go to number five, or should we perhaps use this as an opportunity to try something Mm. new? Now, I'm not suggesting that just because their team said, I normally learn in this way, that that is the reason for you to change everything. No, it's going back exactly owing to what you said. You've got to use multiple sources of information and evidence in order to make the best decision about how you meet that need. But just having one source of evidence from that context allows you to kind of challenge the current status quo and say, maybe it's time to use a different type of learning intervention in order to drive performance. And that's when you then are able to use evidence to bring other sources of 
evidence-informed decisions about design. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what Andy says about that. It's almost as if some leaders in organisations have pretty traditional ideas about learning development, and it's actually they're the people that the L&D types have got to challenge sometimes. Yeah, I, I think w- without doubt, our own research, we, we did a report called Professionalising Learning and Development, which actually called out an uncomfortable truth that often one of the biggest blockers is the mindset of senior leaders. That's a tough one to call out, but that often... What we think is effective is based on the the shape we've had ourselves. So if we've been to a particular learning experience, then often we think that's the way other people should learn. So I think it really is. Laura's absolutely right. I think dialogue is really important in this one and and asking questions. So so I think it's important to think, you know, about where we we find that. I mean, in terms of, you know, the data question, data exists. I mean, we're, we're rich in data now. In fact, probably we have too much data in organizations. So I think one of the skills is understanding what data we use, but particularly think if we think about designing learning, I mean, data lurks in customer services, it lurks in feedback and complaints, it lurks in, you know, HR systems, recruitment systems, performance systems, finance systems. So I think the issue is not that there isn't the data on which we can, you know, make these decisions. I think the the challenge is it's finding the right data. And I think for me, one of the skills we now need as, as learning and HR professionals is to build really good stakeholder relationships because a lot of this evidence-based practice relies on other people in the learning ecosystem being part of the solution here. And often we've been so locked into our own departments that we haven't gone out there. So I think Laura's example from retail is absolutely spot on that we've got to get out there, make these connections and to Owen's point, you've got to ask the right question. You've got to have a hypothesis. What are we trying to solve here? And then we can garner all manner of great insight, both quantitative and qualitative, uh, in terms of supporting how we best design and deploy learning. I mean, I think that's such an important point, because when two minds come together, then there's overlap as well. And there's kind of a real excitement in the overlap. And Owen, I just remember working with you on some of the data and you approached the data that I was looking at from a completely different mindset. And out of that, it was just a fantastic learning experience for me because I was able to see things in what I was looking at. I've been looking at day on day because you had a different approach, Owen, then that kind of released a new life, a new insight into that. And so I think that collaboration and connection can really help us as learning professionals. It's not just down to ourselves. We've got great people around us who are as equally passionate about surfacing insights and solving business problems. And we should pull resources. I mean, oh, and I don't know what you what you think about that, but I just felt, you know, as we were talking about that, it just, it just reminded me of working with you and you challenged me. And I really, really valued a different perspective on that, and it gave me more insight. Oh, absolutely! And uh, you know, the, the the experience was reciprocal. And I think actually that's interrogating the questions that you're actually trying to ask and getting different perspectives is all part of that evidence based approach, rather than just making assumptions or not opening yourself up to you know to feedback or challenge. So it comes back to what one of the things that we said earlier. You know, fundamentally, it comes down to curiosity and a willingness to get better. How do we upskill people? Because we saw, I mentioned those statistics at the beginning, the lack of ability or confidence people have in handling this uh, data. 
I think getting more data savvy is important. And there are plenty of ways of, of doing that. We are learning professionals, so we should be able to figure out a way of be, putting ourselves onto a development path for that. But let's not forget, there are plenty of data savvy people within the organizations that we work in. They can help us to interrogate the data. Uh, so my advice would be to expand out during those very early stages when you're trying to figure out what's the actual problem that we're trying to solve here. How would we know that we would be successful? What data do we currently have is to step outside the function and start speaking to some of the other areas that might be able to provide some of that insight. Because you don't have to do the calculations yourself. There are people there that can help you to get there. I'd like to give an example of that because I was chairing when we were allowed to chair at live events at CIBD event um, last year. And Seb Tyndall was there from the Vitality Group. And I know that there's a story about what Seb's been doing on, on the CIPD site. But what I loved about Seb's story is he moved his learning and development department and sat them next door to the data analytics department. Uh, you know, And so the, the teams were seated physically side by side and just picking up each other's challenges and working out how to do that. And I just I just thought, God, what a simple idea, <laughs> you know, just just get close to people even physically is even better i can see andy uh, in this post covid era that would still be quite difficult but um not impossible maybe i think laura makes a brilliant point there i mean it just triggered off the thinking which is why it's so cool to hang around in these kind of settings the medici in the renaissance they they hung around in a very diverse group you look at that uh, i think john dunn says you know no man or woman is an island and i think there's a real danger that we get professionally we get very isolated and I think that to Laura's point is it is about positioning and interfacing with other professionals. And the Medici was fascinating. You know, you've got philosophers and writers and painters and all manner of people. And together they were able to be far more creative and, and have a greater impact because of that diversity. For me, Owen and Laura, I think one of the challenges we have is that our own professional development is very limited and things are moving fast. And we think the world of learning, it's not only data, which is crucial, uh, but we think about technology, we think about cognitive science. There are many areas which Venn diagram overlap with learning. And I, I think our, our challenge, but also our opportunity is to hang around other professional communities, because that's where we understand not only about data, but we understand about how these other areas how um, practice is moving on and changing. And those things have a direct impact on how we design. So for instance, technology, it's no good to say I'm not particularly interested in technology. So Owen, how do we do that because of the way we're working at the moment? Because clearly it is much more difficult to get that into play, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. My experience is people are more than happy to share if you reach out to them. So whilst it's not necessarily possible for someone in L&D to physically go and attend a marketing conference, and I would hold up marketing as a professional domain that has possibly made that transition or starting to make that transition into being much more evidence-led slightly earlier than we have, perhaps. So you can't physically go and attend a conference and mingle with people there. But all the conferences are virtual now and people who work in marketing functions and marketing functions that are trying to become much more data led are more than happy to talk about their experience if you reach out to them. People are passionate about what they do. They will talk to you. I went through an exercise a number of years ago when I spoke to a group of digital leaders in very different spaces to the one that I was working in because I was looking at revamping how we did stuff. And all that I needed to do was to drop them a LinkedIn message or drop them an email. And the vast majority, 90% plus people came back and said, I can spare an hour to have a chat. 
And Laura, is there any danger that L&D people are going to be a bit sidelined in the business if they don't act a bit faster on this evidence thing? Because evidence-based practice is just so common in every other part of business, isn't it? Yeah, I think there is a sense that we, if we don't start talking about what's important to business and ask smart questions that allow us to be more valuable in that business field, we will be sidelined. If we only talk about data that is relevant to how many people have engaged, how many happy sheets have been collected, you know, how many moments people have spent in videos and, you know, learning related data that our systems churn out. As the business is moving along so quickly at the moment, then we're really in danger of completely thinking we're on the right bandwagon we're talking data and analytics but we're looking at it only through our narrow lens so there's a real danger that we could be sidelined there but also Nigel there's a danger that we could be sidelined when we're we're not able to address what Andy and Owen were saying earlier about the critical reason we're here is to get people ready for change, for performance, for productivity. And if we haven't got evidence about the best way of doing that, whether or not we're on track, what might be getting in the way in terms of systems, when we're not going to be able to smooth that process, we're not going to be able to have the smart conversations that are needed in the system of organization and in the uh, in, you know, in the way that the organization is, is managed. So we need that to challenge ourselves, challenge our design and challenge others in order to bring that value that is so essential from our profession. Yeah, and Laura, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I would slightly challenge the question, Nigel, that you've asked there, because it's easy to spin this in a negative. You know, if we don't do this, then do we become a defunct function within organisations? Do leaders say we don't need learning professionals or we outsource this? How about twisting that round completely on its face and say, if we are driven by great practice and evidence-based, we are able to go to organisations and say, if you invest in this initiative or you invest in this, then we will show a positive outcome. And I think so often working with um, learning professionals, we know the issue on this. So the issue is not to be negative about this, but to get this into a positive place where we can say we are confident that the way we design learning, the methods we use, the technology we use, the approach we use, the data we use, bring such a positive outcome. So I I think let's not down ourselves on here, but recognise there's a massive opportunity here to add value to organisations, and that's where we should be. I stand corrected. Too many years as a journalist, clearly. We're almost reaching the end of our time here. I wanted to sort of try and draw some conclusions to go around to each of you. So if we just start with Owen, just some kind of top tips to finish, really, to set people on the right path for just gathering more evidence and using it more intelligently. I think my main tip would be to learn from how other professional domains have made or have started to make the transition from... Well, like your marketing thing. Like the marketing thing, exactly. But actually, the canonical example is medicine. And you can get a delightful primer on that through Ben Goldhager's book, Bad Science. But there is a lot of stuff out there. For anyone thinking that medicine's got a a much longer track record and importance in learning and development, I'd highlight two things. First is that the drive towards evidence-based practice only took hold of in medicine from the 1970s onwards. And the second is that our ambitions should be that high because, you know, as we've just been discussing, we play a critical role in enabling the organization to enact 
its strategy. All we're saying is by taking an evidence-based approach, you're providing more certainty that our activities will have a positive impact on performance. So what can we learn from how other professional domains have done that? But start small. It doesn't have to be on the biggest, most strategic, costly initiatives. Start small and start trying out some of the techniques that other professional domains have found to be successful. I think for me, I love that, you know, because starting small is about building courage, you know, building your courage, building your confidence. And that is so good. And I think my tip would be avoid the kind of analysis paralysis. You know, we can suddenly think I've got to be more evidence informed. You know, I, I need to read every study about cognitive science. I need to look at every piece of data. I need to find causation and correlation because I need to define causation and correlation you know there is so much that comes at us with the jargon that we can be paralyzed in this new world of work so stop analysis paralysis and I love the work that Rob Bryan has been doing with the CIPD in the past about evidence-based decisions and they say you know get your evidence as much as you can from as many sources as you can, but just enough to help you make that decision. So you don't have to know everything about everything, but get a look at multiple sources of evidence to help you inform your decision. Focus on action. Don't focus on just pure analysis. So that would be my tip. And Andy Lancaster, there's a lot of CIPD resources online. I know you've been involved in quite a bit of that. Anything in particular you point to to set people on the right path? I think there's one little six-step process which I find really useful, which is all around being grounded in evidence-based practice. Six A's, asking, really translating a practical issue or problem into a question which is that whole kind of hypothesis, acquiring, systematically searching for the evidence, appraising, critically judging the trustworthiness and relevance of evidence, aggregating, weighing and pulling together evidence, applying, then incorporating that evidence into decision-making and finally assessing, evaluating the outcome of the decision. So it's a neat little six A's, but I kind of have that by the side of the Mm. desk as a check that we're going to do this in a really good way and i'd say as well as that nigel just hang around with good people who are really passionate about this which is why it's great to have had owen and laura in this session here let's get alongside great people who are passionate about this well it's been great to hang around with such good people thank you one and all laura overton owen ferguson and andy lancaster who i think between them made a pretty overwhelming case for the value of evidence as a tool to improve learning nurture talent and help people become fitter for the business in hand by the way if you are looking for more suggestions on how to work smarter in L&D and HR in these times. Well, don't forget to subscribe to these CIPD podcasts so you don't miss an edition. That's anywhere you usually get your podcasts. Last time, for example, we heard about the benefits of taking a few more calculated risks with your people. We had a lot of positive reaction to that one on social media. Fantastic podcast, really good. And another about time HR had a shake up. So do go back and see what you can catch up on from recent editions. But until next time, from me, Nigel Cassidy and all of us here at the CIPD. It's goodbye.